There's a famous one-hit wonder tune from 1966 called Red Rubber Ball. Uh, I was fascinated to find that it was written by Bruce Woodley of The Seekers and Paul Simon, co-written, those two cats together. Lovely thing. So let's play it. Neat set of lyrics too. It's a real, well, basically piss off. <laughs> In a cheery manner, Red Rubber Ball from a band that this is their only thing they did really. Uh, the band's called The Circle, C-Y-R-K-L-E. You can find it on YouTube too. Cheers. Here it comes. Why on earth would I play such a thing? Well, it's a co-written song between Bruce Woodley of the Seekers and Paul Simon of Simon and the Garfunkel. Next up, Paul Simon's biographer on his life and work. And why is he so neurotic? In the canon of Western modern music. Man, imagine having the songbook of Paul Simon. It's printed on our musical DNA. And yet he's one of the cats from the most formative time in modern music, the 60s, mainly. But I think most of us really haven't got a handle on what the hell is the cat like? Because uh, I've thought about it and I don't really know. So I was thrilled to find in the mailbox, hello, a massive biography on Paul Simon, Homeward Bound, The Life of Paul Simon, and joining us, the author, Peter Ames Carlin. Peter, is that just me and the people I run into that if you ask them about what Paul Simon's really like, they look at you like a dog that's been shown a card trick? 
<laughs> well, you know, I think people here at any rate have in the United States have some sense of what he's like just because he's gotten so much media attention over the years. And I think a lot of people have the sense that he's maybe not the most pleasant guy in rock and roll, though he's done wonderful things for a lot of people. He's also been a very sort of prickly character over a lot of years. And I think you, you don't need to look much further than his relationship with Artie Garfunkel his boyhood chum and career partner with whom he's had such an operatic love-hate-hate-hate-hate-love type of relationship going on six decades now. Yeah, it may come to those with just a passing interest in their work. Their friendship really did start before puberty, really. Before puberty. They were 11 years old. Uh, when they finally got to talking, and, and they were in grade school, I think closer to nine when, when they sort of recognized one another. just Or at least Paul recognized Artie. It took some time for him to actually find the guts to, to talk to the guy. Um, but once they did start to talk, they really hit it off, and, and, and uh, you know, they, they were both so focused on music and, and both had the same kind of competitive fire and, and a kind of confidence mixed with extreme insecurity that's uh, <laughs> apparently the right formula for for taking on the world yeah we'll discuss the relationship and also the musical qualities that mr garfunkel brought to the duo as well which may have gone underappreciated i don't know if people try and talk it up because he seems as though he was undervalued but anyway first up which i think we should get an answer from you about what sources did you manage to access well, Paul didn't really want to have anything to do with me, which was a little bit frustrating. I mean, I've written the fourth biography I've written, and uh, and I've had a lot of cooperation from two of those guys, including Bruce Springsteen, who I worked with very closely on the, the book I wrote about him. But Paul really just doesn't like the idea of biographers digging into his past, so he decided to not help me at all, and in fact, did what he could to, to try to stop me. But uh, fortunately, it wasn't enough. But, you know, there have been researched biographies about Paul, but I think the most recent of them is about 20 years old, and the others are older than that. Uh, and so there was just a ton of material to dig into. I spent three and a half years working on the book, and I traveled widely and, and visited with his friends, you know, people he'd grown up with, people he went to high school with, people he'd been in college, people he'd been in bands with, people who had played for him and also ex-girlfriends and wives and a whole bunch of folks who had been close to him and a ton of people who worked on that Cape Man play from the 90s that oh. was such a massive flop for him. Between that stuff and the information, just the raw sort of contemporaneous information that had been in newspapers, you know, I read all of his high school newspapers and there were interesting articles about him in there and, you know, the college newspaper and on and on and on. There was just a ton of information about Paul sitting around waiting to be discovered, and so I set out to discover them. What have you discovered about Paul that may inform why he's such a prickly porcupine with people like you? Well, you know, he's always been a very insecure fellow. I mean, on the one hand, I think he's always been aware of his own intelligence and his, you know, his musical talent. I mean, he's extraordinarily talented as a musician and a songwriter. But I think he also, I mean, his father was very a very critical fellow and, and deeply critical of himself. 
and he passed that along to Paul. His father was a musician as well and then switched to, you know, becoming an educator when he was in his 40s. And so he didn't want Paul to pursue a career in music. He preferred that he become a lawyer or a businessman, something respectable. But Paul just had to be a musician. You know, it's who he is. And his father gave him a hard time about that and would even tell him, you know, when Paul was, you know, on the top of the charts and, you know, and on top of the world during the 60s and beyond, and, and his dad would say, look, you know, so you're big and famous and you're rich and everybody loves you and all this, but what are you really going to do with your life? I mean, what's the point of that? You know, I mean, and at the time, I mean, he was also one of the more, and has been for 50 years, one of the more acclaimed songwriters and musicians in the world. And I think Paul internalized a lot of that. I think it's it's it made his life more difficult, his own sense of himself more difficult. And I think that, you know, you can't help but for that to affect how you deal with other people as well. Well, an image has just come to mind. A cross between Mozart and George Costanza. <laughs> well, in a sense, you know, I, I don't think he's quite as self-defeating as George Costanza. I mean, he was, I think the Mozart part is true. I think there's almost a, a kind of Shakespearean quality to him when he's at his darkest. Think of Othello, you know, or raging on the fjord. But Paul, for all of the, the bad turns he's done for people over the years and the prickly things that he's done, you know, we can't forget the fact that even without the music, he can be an incredibly sweet-natured, generous, wonderful fellow for people. You know, mm. he's helped build a lot of careers for people. The, the singing group The Roaches uh, credit him, rightfully so, with helping them start their career. The jazz trumpeter Chris Bode, same thing. Paul, you know, just recognizing their talent and wanting to be a good guy, stepped in and helped them build the foundation for, you know, what became incredible careers for, for all of them. Speaking of that broodiness, which proved no impediment to people like Leonard Cohen and Paul Simon, there's a little story in there of when and where he wrote The Sound of Silence. We're not going to give all the book away, but can you tell that story? Sure thing. You know, in the fall of 1963, he had started out as a as a sort of a pop musician, you know, with a deep interest in doo-wop and, and rhythm and blues and early rock and roll. And he and Artie had had a hit in the mid-50s when they were still in, in high school called Hey Schoolgirl. At the time, they recorded under the name Tom and Jerry. And Paul pursued his solo career as a sort of a pop songwriter, performer, Jerry Landis for many years. But when he finished with college, and he'd gotten turned on to folk music in college in the late 50s, along with so many other people, he became more and more of a folk songwriter. Uh, and in the fall of 63, I think feeling a great deal of confusion, you know, after graduating from, from college as to what his life was about and where he wanted to go. And then also, I think, feeling devastated by the assassination of President Kennedy. He describes going into the bathroom in his parents' house where he liked to play. He'd turn on the water so people couldn't hear what he was doing. And he just sat down in the darkness on the tile floor and began writing a song. You know, the first words were, Hello, darkness, my old friend talking about the dark around him in the bathroom. He painted this very vivid portrait in music and particularly in words of the world that he saw around him in the sort of post-Kennedy 60s of people being detached from one another, this great sense of isolation and sort of spiritual desolation that had fallen around, around the country and, and certainly upon himself. 
And that became that song, Sound of Silence. And if you listen to it, I mean, it's so very different from everything he'd written up to that point, even the first two or three folk songs he'd written before that. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence in restless dreams I walked alone now the streets of cobblestone with a halo of a street lamp I turned my collar It just had that incredible sort of uh, towering melody that sort of rises and falls and, and these incredibly stark images, you know, as I think I said in the book, that just would not be ignored. I mean, he recorded it with Artie for the first Simon and Garfunkel record in, in 1964, just an acoustic folk record like all the other folk records. But when his producer, Tom Wilson, who also produced Bob Dylan, for Columbia Records and was with Dylan when Dylan started using electric instruments. Paul was in England actually playing shows by himself and Artie was in graduate school at Columbia University, but Tom Wilson overdubbed these electric instruments and re-released Sound of Silence as a folk rock song and it just exploded up the charts and within two months maybe it was number one and that was really the beginning of, of Simon and Garfunkel's golden period. 
Yeah, it's an impressive songbook to the extent where so many of these songs sound like they must have always been here. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of one of them, really. I mean, and, and you put it exactly right. I mean, there's, you know, you think about a song like Bridge Over Troubled Water or even a song like The Boxer. There's so many of those songs that just sort of feel like you hear them for the first time and you feel like that song's already existed. You know, and the amazing thing is when when he talks about writing them, particularly Bridge Over Troubled Water, it's like the song kind of came through him. It sort of fell out of the sky into his ears. And I think that's a, you know, that's an artist working at the absolute peak of his creative powers. And there's so many other songs that he's written since then that feel exactly the same way. I mean, think about Kodachrome or 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover or Flip Side and Away. I mean, just just goes on and on and on. You hear them for the first time and it's like they've always existed. Yeah, although I do sense a bit of a change from the 60s through to you know his solo stuff, which proved to be hugely popular, so much more jaunty in the 70s. Yeah. You know, one of the things that Artie didn't like to do or felt uncomfortable with was singing like rhythm and blues type songs, you know, singing harder edge type of tunes. And Paul loved, I mean, and Artie did too, but Paul really loved rhythm and blues and gospel music, and he got so much deeper into it when he knew his records were just going to be by, you know, they they were going to be solo records. He didn't have to write or make records with Artie's voice and Artie's preferences in mind. He went down to Alabama and recorded in Muscle Shoals with the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. They were the band that had played on virtually every great non-Motown R&B song in America in the 60s and into the early and mid-70s. I mean, they're the band behind Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett and so many others. You know, Paul was hugely enamored of those guys, and so he went down there and, and got their feel, especially if you listen to a record like There Goes Rhyme and Simon, which is one of his great classics. You know, they're all over it, and you get that very jaunty sort of visceral, surging kind of music that has that great sort of bottom end and a real, you know, passion to it. Um, and gospel too. I mean, gospel. When it was, you know, that's gospels all over that same record. Loves me like a rock, and uh, you know, a bunch of those other songs. And he was just as inspired by reggae when he went and recorded Mother and Child Reunion and uh, New Orleans music. And and of course, it was only ten years or so later when he you know went to South Africa to make Graceland. Yeah, we'll discuss that in a moment. Okay. When you mess up your own- Art Garfunkel, there's a sentence in here, like, Ringo Starr thought he had it bad when people were saying, oh, you're the luckiest person in the world and the worst drummer, which is absolutely freaking wrong anyway. Yeah, But, I mean, think think how Art Garfunkel must have felt. You're just the thing that's stuck on the side of Simon. Just this from the book, when Paul Simon's writing, Artie's absence meant that Paul couldn't do his work. Paul couldn't make an entire album without Artie's voice and ideas. He was the only guy, with the exception of Roy Haley, who could listen to one of Paul's songs and know what Paul was hearing in his head and how to mm-hmm. help make it real. Wow. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, Artie was musically trained as well and is an incredible, uh, you know, and he's contributed to the songs in a lot of ways that, uh, you know, not just as a producer sort of helping develop the texture of the track and and helping guide Paul's vocals and and write the harmony parts a lot of the time. He also wrote half of Garborough Fair, the the canticle part of that. Those are Paul's lyrics, but the melody 
that Artie sings in Scarborough Fair is of his own invention, and it's completely different from what Paul had in his original song, and it's beautiful. He also wrote that sort of what sounds like a trumpet solo in The Boxer, which was so, you know, it has a sort of uh, Aaron Copeland-like of, of simple majesty to it. I mean, so much of Simon and Garfunkel is about the way their voices weave together. It wasn't like Paul wrote those parts and just told Artie what to sing. It was never like that at all. Part of the reason why he depended on Artie so much, you know, uh, the primary reason being how wonderful his voice was uh, and how much better Paul's songs sounded with Artie singing them. But also he felt like Artie was so handsome and tall and had that golden hair and just was the vision. He felt like people must think that all these beautiful songs had to come from the good-looking guy in the, in the duo, you know. So he would sit there on their, you know, in the Bridge Over Troubled Water tour, and he's described this himself of sitting backstage watching Artie do that climactic performance of the song Bridge Over Troubled Water, and the place, you know, would erupt with applause and a big standing ovation, and Paul would be backstage, you know, puffing on a cigarette, thinking, "Great." They're plotting for him, you know, but that's my song. I wrote that song, you know, this is bullshit. Why, why, you know, why is Hardy getting all the applause for this? You know, so, so that was Paul's paranoia, and he talked about that for years. You know, you can imagine his insecurity about Artie, but then you can also imagine Artie's insecurity about Paul, how so much of his career, so much of his life was kind of built around Paul continuing to write songs and include him in his music. Yeah. This is why, you know, when he went into movies at the end of, of their career, you know, he, he really got into it with a kind of vengeance. It was, it, was, it was a real declaration of independence. Given that poisonous dynamic, it's amazing they lasted as long as they did together. Yeah. Graceland, did that scar, Paul? Because I'll give you my point of view. I did think, uh, despite it being massively popular, I was tearing mm -hmm. my hair out because I thought, look, it sounds like Lady Smith, Black Mambazo, as much as it does Paul Simon to me. Plus, oh, come on, there's a boycott on. Plus, mm -hmm. I didn't think the band that gave it its sound got that much credit. A whole lot of scaffolding being used from another bunch of people who are doing it pretty tough, holding up his damn career. Your thoughts? Well, okay. I'm not afraid to criticize Paul in the book when it comes to things that I feel like were sort of moral or, or ethical uh, 
shortcomings. But I think when it came to Graceland, I think he made a couple key and pretty stupid mistakes just when it came to acknowledging the authority of the ANC, you know, the African National Congress. In other words, if he had asked for permission from the ANC to go do this recording, which, by the way, recording in South Africa with South African musicians was not explicitly a part of the cultural boycott. The cultural boycott was put in place to keep Western musicians from coming and playing to segregated audiences in South Africa and vice versa, having the segregated bands and sports teams and dance troops from South Africa going and performing in other countries as if their government was a normal thing, which, which of course it, it wasn't. So Paul was very much in the clear when it came to the cultural boycott despite the controversy. I understand what you mean about the cultural appropriation piece, but here's the thing that makes it more complicated. Did you know that Paul Simon actually recorded his first South African-inspired song in 1961? It was a B-side for a band he was producing called Tico and the Triumphs, and it was a song he wrote called Wildflower, which he'd written in this sort of exotic way, specifically to follow on The Lion Sleeps Tonight, yeah. which was a big hit for the Tokens in 1961. I think there's a and difference what, between, you know, the cultural appropriation. I mean, you can use that as inspiration. Let me finish my... Let okay. me finish what I was saying. Okay. The Lion Sleeps Tonight was written, originally it was called Mbubi, and then it became Wimaway. It was written by a fellow named Solomon Linda, who was a Zulu tribes member who had a very popular, you know, singing choir in South Africa in the 20s. And when they began to listen to the music, the records coming in from the United States, like Ragtime and Rhythm and Blues and Blues, then he took his Zulu sound combined it with what he was hearing out of the Western countries and created the song in Booby, which became a huge hit. And then after some, you know, became a huge hit for the tokens as the line sleeps tonight. So when Paul heard the township jive and the Umbakonga music in the early eighties, it sounded instantly familiar to him, partly because that music derived from the same sources from which his favorite rhythm and blues and doo-wop music derived from. Because it was all a part of, you know, it would all float out of Africa, but some of the African-American music had gone back to Africa and then came back through Africa again. And so everyone's working from the same kind of cultural blueprint. Of course they are. You know? But uh, the th thing I don't like is borrowing yeah. the whole freaking band. It's more than inspiration. It's more than influence. It's, it's just too much of cut and paste. But the people who love him the most as a result of Graceland are those very same musicians. Part of what he said he was trying to do, and which he did magnificently, was to introduce their music to a global audience. No, yeah. I mean, I saw, I saw the you know, Ladysmith's Black Mambazo play in, in my hometown here in Portland, Oregon, in the United States, to a sold-out hall of adoring fans and they only played a couple tunes off of graceland but there was a huge audience there sitting hushed listening to all of their own south african songs and so he really did a good job of giving credit and royalties where they were due mm. you know i understand i mean here's the thing i think that your impulse to feel like there's something very unfair about this is the right impulse to have but I think that when you actually talk to the people who were involved in the recordings and, and ask them if they feel ripped off, I mean, these are the people that actually did the work, they'll say, not in a million years. I mean, Joseph Shabalala, 
the leader of, of Ladysmith Black Mombasa, loves Paul. I considers him one of his best friends in the world. Yeah. So in other words, it's an extremely complicated issue. Paul made crucial mistakes to make him seem a lot worse yeah. than he actually was. Okay. I think maybe you think I'm upset about something I'm not. Oh, okay. I just... Well, I don't... <laughs> no, it's fine. Well, it's just that you were crying. That's... No, I mean... No, I know. I, anyway. Here, here it is. I don't care how popular it is. I just think the nature of Graceland, it's a bit artistically hollow on Paul's part. Hollow? You think it's hollow? Yeah. Well, you know, okay, on Paul... I no, 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 no. Batman Bazo, fill it up. But yeah. on Paul's part, don't know. Oh, one of the main themes in my book you know, and talking about Paul and his music is, it's all cultural assimilation. I mean, his people were immigrants, you know, his grandparents were immigrants who came to the United States and, and as, you know, in the 20th century, that, that whole immigrant story in the U.S. is the sort of process that leads from sort of old world orthodoxy to new world assimilation. Mm. And I think so much of his career as he's moved from style to style to, is sort of an reiteration of that same cultural assimilation process over and over again. What I sort of love about Graceland, beyond the beautiful sort of South African music, is the way that he manages to write songs in their style that are still set in his actual world, you know, of the Upper West Side of Manhattan mm -hmm. and the characters and the people that he's involved with, the parties and the, you know, <laughs> yeah, that whole scene. I mean, the one song that really is about his experience in the third world is, is You Can Call Me Al, uh, Under African Skies, and, and there's one or two others. I know what you mean. To a lot of people, the record was incomplete without some kind of commentary about what was going on in South Africa about apartheid and the wickedness of apartheid and the wickedness of racism. Why was there no specific political song about that? But on the other hand, I think there's a kind of meta-politics to the whole thing, which, which I think probably had something to do with how quickly Western countries, particularly the United States, which had been willfully blind to apartheid and South African wickedness, that by bringing this music and introducing people to the, the humanity of the black South African people, the natives, and the amount of joy and love and feeling, you know, I think at that point they became less of an abstraction. People felt, their, felt the beating of their hearts, and I think that was important. Explicitly political music is important as well and is vital, but Paul has never really written explicitly political music. I mean, no, I, really rarely. I still think you're under the impression that I'm upset about something I'm not. It's, it's exactly the artistic sound of it. It just sounds a bit clunky to me. But I'll tell you what, yeah, I really like, fine. I love being able to have a, an, an argument about this with someone who knows something about it. It's great. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. And I'm not saying that anything that you're saying or, or anything that you feel about it is for some reason, illegitimate or something. I mean... It might be, and yeah. you can give me a slap. That'd be great. <laughs> It'd be a long tr plane trip, but, uh, <laughs> but I don't know, maybe. Could be worth it. I'll come down to New Zealand and slap you across the face, and, and then off I'll be. I'll just head right back home. It'll be like that. Brilliant. Hey... We'd uh, have to have a beer first, at any rate. Ex yeah, maybe a couple. All right. There's something that I just can sniff. I might be wrong, but there's something about the first love. Kathy. Yeah. Imagine you were that Kathy whom she he's split up with because she was, I suppose, eminently sensible, not interested in fame. To have a song like America and be that mm -hmm. Kathy. I think it's 
one of his greatest achievements is the song America amongst yeah. a songbook which has got glory throughout. But America, yeah. oh my word. Your thoughts on that song and is there something a little special about the first love? Well, yeah, let's talk about Kathy first. I mean, I think, you know, Paul has, has often talked about, um, uh, about how that period in England when he was beginning to make it a little bit as a solo folk singer, in love with Kathy, Kathy Chitty was her name at the time, you know, and they lived together for a time and saw each other. Paul's talked about that as the happiest period of his life because he was on his own, he was away from all the expectations and demands of him at home in New York City, and he had sort of found his own world and his people in England. And then he had this beautiful young girlfriend, and they were carefree, you know. I mean, it was that period before, you know, after college, but before real grown-up responsibility grabs you by the lapel and forces you to be a responsible young man. And so he wrote about her. I mean, I think Kathy's song is one of his fantastic earlier songs, too. And he speaks of her in this kind of devout way, as if she were the sun in his life. And there's that line about, the only truth I know is you. So you see, I have come to doubt All that I once held is true I stand alone without beliefs The only truth I know is you Which is an amazing Thing. And then when he, when he wrote America, uh, which came a good two or three years after Kathy's song, I, I'm not certain if that trip ever happened in America, whether he actually did take that literal trip. But I think what he was probably doing was taking his early innocent love affair that he had and connecting it to some idea of what was going on in America at the time. That sense of isolation and desolation in this country of people who are so removed from one another. There's that kind of fantastic image at the end of everybody in their own cars on the Jersey Turnpike to find America. You know, all on their own, though. You know, in America, is something you kind of need to to get your arms around, you know, in the company of other people. The whole point of America is should be community and, and togetherness and, and, you know, as they say, a whole lot of people melting into one uh, while bringing all their own colors and flavors and cultures into the mix. But the interesting thing is that people see it as a very political song, which, which it is to a degree. I mean, it certainly is a very precise and trenchant kind of cultural observation. But when you get to that last verse... You know, it's not, you really understand that, that, that as much as he's observing the country around him, it's this own internal sense of desolation that's really on his mind. The climactic verse of the whole thing, it begins, Kathy, I'm lost, I said, though I knew she was sleeping. I'm empty and aching and I don't know why. And so it's as if he's projecting his own internal kind of spiritual malaise with the country around him it's a phenomenal song i mean it's it's hard we'd have to have a whole other conversation about the music and the incredible modulations in the song from key to key and the phenomenal thing about lyrics that that like i never even thought of till i read something about it was none of the words in that song rhyme here's a trick that i love to play if yeah. somebody's never heard of the song just write them out as prose and it reads yeah. 
just as prose. It's like you're reading a novel. Doesn't sound like a song. And yet, yeah. oh my word, how exquisitely it fits. Let us be lovers, we'll marry our fortunes together. Paul geniuses, or what we refer to as geniuses, he's definitely not only one of them, but up in the top rank. I mean, when it comes to stuff like that, you know, he has a lot of his his natural flaws, as do we all. Given, I think, just the extent of his character and his his achievements and his talents and his charisma and impact, all of his play out on a grander stage than ours do. When I was for the three and a half years I was working on the book. There were a lot of things to feel like, wow, Paul, I wish Paul were a cooler guy. I wish he hadn't done that. I wish he hadn't done this. You know, I mean, like that was, was, was patently unfair and he should, you know, he definitely knew it and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then I'd put on another record or whatever I was writing about at the time and it was like, you, you just can't get around how beautiful it is. Just something on America. You were mentioning the reveal at the end about, oh, what's this really about? But... I actually think the foreplay is better than the orgasm. It's almost maybe a little melodramatic for me in the end. The exquisite mm-hmm. mundanities 
the imagery of those mundanities on the trip from Saginaw. It's, yeah, yeah. They are just stunning. I just, it's, yeah, out of this world, anyway. It is. And the thing is, there's a mundanity, all these people in their cars on the New Jersey Turnpike, which is, in some places, not the most appealing place to be, especially as you're headed into New York. And it's just rush hour, headed into New York City. And just, you know, there they all are. You know, there are all these people, one on, you know, one per car, clogging up the freeway, and they're all thinking they're headed towards some sort of great achievement or something magical in New York City, you know, sort of the heart of America in a lot of ways. But they're all lost. They're all by themselves. And he's um, one of them. He's just one of the ants as well. It's a beautiful, beautiful song, and it's one of those things that you could sit up and talk about for, you know, for hours and hours. Which is almost what many, they're doing. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like we're in a dorm room somewhere having this conversation at yeah. two in the morning. But <laughs> I hope you're enjoying this, listeners. This is going to be part of an ongoing series, a nightly <laughs> four-hour discussion on a Paul Simon song per evening. We could do that. Yeah, we could. The book Homeward Bound: The Life of Paul Simon, and we've been speaking with Peter Ames Carlin. Thank you so much for your time, your patience, my and putting up with my contrarian views regarding some elements of Paul, so thank you very much. I didn't put up with them. I, I enjoyed the hell out of them, so no apologies. Thank you for such a great interview. This, is, this has been really terrific. I appreciate it. He's a neurotic genius, but he wouldn't be the Lone Ranger there, would he? No. I think neurotic and genius go together uh, uh, really comfortably. Tomorrow evening, another musical exposition. Don McGlashan. What a fabulous songbook. Uh, he's up close and personal tomorrow between 10 o'clock and 11, and we play a few. Uh, we don't play this one, I think one of his finest achievements. God, it's a heartbreaking thing. Uh, he's just thinking about his dead brother, Andy. This is the front lawn. What we can of it, up into the news at midnight. Thank you very much for listening. Let's take a walk along the beach before the tide comes in. You sure missed one hell of a party last night I was just disappointed But the rest of the family won't even mention your name Yeah, I know you didn't mean to let me down last night Don't keep your distance from me Andy Don't keep your distance from me So you didn't make it back in time for the birthday boy I know things can't stay the same year after year Take a look at this beach now There isn't much left of the place we knew when we were kids But when we used to go diving from the rocks over there Andy, don't keep your distance from Don't keep your distance What do you say we go up north here? 
to catch the sailing races Can you believe this place? Well, can you? They're making money out of money They're making buildings out of glass Their kids look like they stepped out of fashion magazines None of it's gonna last On Takapuna Beach, I can still see you. And I can let myself pretend that you're still around. I turned 28 last night. If you were still alive, you'd be just short of 33. Could see a hometown now. 